Hello there, I'm Catherine Griffiths, the editor of The Lawyer. And I'm Christian Smith, the litigation editor at The Lawyer. Welcome to what is 2022's final episode of The Lawyer podcast. Now, you may have noticed that our opening salvo was not our usual theme music. Yes, we have succumbed to the seasonal spirit because that was a snippet of the one and only Linklater's Global Choir singing Herrscher des Himmels from Bach's Christmas Oratorio. And caroling law firms is something we will return to later in this podcast. Speaking of Linklater's, though, as the Magic Circle firm launches its first solicitor apprenticeship program on the podcast, Horizon editor Katie Dow will join us to assess what it says about the future of that route into law. Also on the podcast, international editor Alex Taylor will pop to explain what's grabbed his attention in snowy Poland. And do partners know it's Christmas? As the first vaguely normal Christmas approaches for three years, we'll discuss whether lawyers can actually take a break this festive season. Now, before we crack on with this festive episode, it would be absolutely remiss of us to ignore the hottest news broken by the lawyer this week. That's right, Anglo-Scottish boutique Dixon Minto, with offices in London and Edinburgh, is set to merge with US firm Millbank after talks fizzled out with Freed Frank. Notably, Dixon Minto's Edinburgh office is not part of the deal to join the New York firm. And you might remember back to our earlier podcast when we discussed the pitfalls of transatlantic mergers. And of course, there is much, much more coverage on this at thelawyer.com. Well, we leave Dixon Minto behind because twas the week before Christmas and all across the land... I'm not going to try and rhyme, but uh, staff and officers really have fallen into two camps. Yeah, there are those who have started winding down since the 1st of December and whose entire existence now revolves around mince pies and Christmas parties. And of course, there are those who are stressed out of their minds trying to meet their end of year deadlines. And they're probably not listening to this, to be honest. No, absolutely won't be. And uh, even if everything gets done, the big question that we want to talk about right now is can lawyers actually switch off over Christmas? And the word can is interesting because that encompasses are they allowed to and will they allow themselves? Can they switch off after Christmas? That's right. Well, to discuss this, we're joined by our in-house reporter, Lucy Cruz, who until earlier this year was a trainee solicitor as well at a large London law firm. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Christian. Lucy, what happens in law firms at Christmas? How's that, how's that changed with COVID? It kind of varies like firm to firm. I think my team was always great in that we had an Excel spreadsheet and it was very organised, so we knew exactly who was going to take Christmas off when. But other teams um, at different law firms don't necessarily have the same kind of structures and it was sort of a free-for-all. So some people would have to work, some people would be technically on call. So if they needed um, to work, then they would have to regardless of if they'd ask for holiday days. So it's kind of those the firms that are doing that that are a bit more improvisatory about it are probably institutionalising a bit of resentment amongst their workforce, presumably. I mean, I think that's certainly possible. I mean, it's it's easy to forget, you know, and, and we sit here out of the legal world kind of looking in going, oh, you know, it's everyone works ridiculous hours and really hard and, and why aren't they, you know, enjoying their Christmas and that sort of thing. It is easy to then forget that actually, you know, a lot of lawyers really like working hard. They get a kick out of it. And, you know, perhaps more importantly, you know, lawyers are often kind of safety nets for their clients. 
people come to them with urgent issues, whether they be problems to solve or, you know, deals that have to be done now because of a very valid reason. So sometimes when lawyers do get contacted over Christmas or have to work over Christmas, it is for a genuine reason. Um, And, you know, they can sympathize with their client and say, well, fair enough. The issue then becomes, I think, is when, you know, a, a partner contacts an associate or a client contacts a partner about something that they want done right now on Boxing Day, uh, when it really could wait until the 2nd of January. But that's that has always been the case in the law. I mean, the law is a service industry. Why is it now that this has become such a topic of, of conversation? We've talked about this in the podcast before, about the Slaughter and May mem- Memo, <clears throat> to its associates about their sort of about their availability and codifying it to some extent. I mean, Lucy, you're, you're not you're not that long out of the law. Do you, uh, you know, do you have any sort of observations now that you are um, out of private practice? Uh, what what are your thoughts looking into it? Lawyers never went into big law on the presumption that they weren't going to have to work hard. Um, and I think that really comes across through like a partner story that I was told who um, so probably about 15 years ago had six giant folders of um, bundles for a litigation case sent to him in the Bahamas on Christmas Eve because it was something that had to be done. And that was, you know, in the days when there wasn't the tech, you couldn't take laptops with you, you didn't have a work phone. And he was still very much expected to do that because that's what the client needed at that point. I guess the issue now is that it's become a lot more normalized in that you are contactable all the time. So you don't have an excuse to say no. And it's about managing partner expectations a lot of the time in that if you say, oh, I just didn't check my phone, it doesn't fly as an excuse. So if on Christmas day you were needed, but you didn't check your phone, there's not a lot you can do. (laughs) And yeah, exactly. And and people kind of say, you know, create boundaries and, you know, why shouldn't you be able to just say, I'm sorry, it was Christmas. I didn't check my work phone. (laughs) Sounds really reasonable, right? But the the kind of counter to that as well is the competitive nature that law is or or, or, as a practice, you know. So if you're not answering your phone, associate B down the road is answering their phone. And when it comes to the good cases or the good matters and the good clients that you want to work on or the best partners to work with, they might be the ones that that get called upon because you weren't available that time. And it kind of creates this loop, doesn't it, of, oh, well, I mean, I could create a boundary in this Christmas break. I really need to catch up on my sleep. By the way, Kat, I will be uncontactable during Christmas just to make that point. <laughs> so um, <will> I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if they then do that, you know, you know it, it means that they might not be the favoured associate for promotion or for a bonus down the road and there's that sort of internal uh, echo chamber almost in in some firms where you might say oh yes you know slaughter a may let's codify this let's let's you know make sure we're not having meetings too late at night or whatever it might be doesn't if there's someone who's out there willing to do it then the other people you know you're kind of you have to keep up with the person who's willing to do the most in your firm maybe rather than the person who's willing to do least Lucy, do you recognise that? Yeah, it's definitely a roundabout that I think people do go round like repeatedly in firms because it is that case of client supply and demand. And it's the same with what I would call associate supply and demand, that the top associates are going to be the ones that build the most hours, work the hardest. And it's definitely a case of visibility. So who's the most visible not necessarily in the office all the time, but who's the most responsive? How are you being perceived by the partners and the other associates around you? And that really contributes to how you're perceived for promotions. 
And and to what extent is this? I mean, we've talked. You know, we've spoken before about the, you know, the law firm response in terms of policy. But it's so often driven by individual behaviour by individual partners, isn't it? And, you know, where, and how law firms cope with an individual partner's workaholism, and how she or he will actually be running their lives, um, and how they expect their team to be running their lives as well. I think the main question here is who's the Grinch. Is it the partners? Is it the clients? And for me, really, I think that partners are under so much pressure. That's not always acknowledged. They're having to manage stratospheric targets, client expectations, some more successfully than others. They've got no real control over their workload. There's a number of associates who are looking at partners and going, I don't see myself in their shoes. I don't see the way that they work, their working style, perhaps their workaholism as something that I would want to do. So you're getting senior associates who are totally rejecting that track and saying... I mean, it's so it's so interesting because I literally this week had a, had a meeting with a very senior partner at one of the top top firms in London, and she said the same thing. I recognise that that is true, and that is an issue that we have that we have to confront, because if we don't, we're going to you know lose the good people that want to come to law in the first place. I mean, law obviously already has a high turnover of people and a lot of people who leave the law, but if more and more people don't actually want to be partner. That's an issue that they can't ignore. But here's the deal. I don't see that that's a problem. If you have a really talented workforce that is happy to stay and, you know, work regular hours, but not, you know, not necessarily sign up for ever increasing pay, but be paid very, very well compared to the vast majority of the population, be able to afford a mortgage, etc. You know, you've got a workforce that's ready. Why should there be an up and out issue here? Why isn't there a track that is seen as, you know, this is the happy track, if you like, you know, rather than going, oh, well, you're somehow a failure because you didn't make partnership. It really seems to come down to this weird blind spot that both associates and partners have about how to live their, how, what is meaningful and actually what work, what work can actually achieve. I think it's a good question. Um, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot, to be said for that sort of approach. I think one of the main issues facing it at the moment is, and you know, coming back to Christmas, this is a an, an example of where this happens. People don't necessarily know what they're going to get from their firm until they start. And in particular, it comes down to the teams more often than anything else, or the individual partners. And with Christmas, until you get to your first Christmas at a firm, you might not actually know whether or not people actually take the time off. Um, so in that way it makes it hard for people to choose this easier track that doesn't lead to partnership because they don't really know until they start no i suppose that is true but i, I was i'm I, I still remain skeptical that that isn't something that can't be addressed in in law firm comms and 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 so on lucy i mean you you are the most recent um uh, among our team i'm the most one of the more recent joiners um could you summarize a little bit of the the sort of the culture shock about leaving the law, um, because I know that you've written very persuasively about why you wanted to leave. Is there anything that anyone that is considering leaving the law should be aware of about what it's like to, what happens when you land on the other side? I think the hardest thing for me was suddenly not being constantly measured by my input. Coming into journalism, I'm very much measured by my output, and that's something that I've grown to absolutely love about the job, but it is very strange not having every seven minutes of your day tracked. And that was something I really had to get used to because all of a sudden I I didn't know if people knew I was busy. I realized I was just trusted to be busy. There was no one tracking my capacity to be like, oh, look, you've only billed 
you know, 80% of your target today, that means that you can take on another load of work. It's not like that here. And that took me a long time to sort of realize that my value was my output. Well, Lucy and Christian, thank you so much. And this is a topic I think we'll be returning to over 2023. Well, moving on. And class is an abiding British obsession, but it's really, really difficult to define. Is it where you were born? Is it your accent? Is it how much you earn? All of this points to the fact that it's a really complex issue and so is access to the profession on this basis. Now, that in turn requires very well thought out and sophisticated recruitment strategies. I am here with our Horizon editor, Katie Dow, to discuss current thinking on this topic in commercial firms. Now, Katie, you were at a big meeting about this, were you not, the other week? What, what, was, the, what was being discussed? Yes, um, I was at uh, Linklater's last week for an event hosted by the City of London Law Society and um, there were about 45 firms in the room and they were there to discuss the issue of solicitor apprentices. Now apprentices have been around since around 2016 but usually they've been, well traditionally they've been the reserve really of the regional firms but what we're seeing at this event was some kind of galvanisation from the city firms. So there is growing interest here. Linklater has made the announcement that they will offer apprentices from 2023. They expect to galvanise a lot more interest around it. One of the reasons for that, obviously, is that they are avoiding um, the NQ pay war. They are reaching out below university level to, to make touch with 18-year-olds who may not have otherwise been exposed to a career in, in the profession. So they are really looking at how do you sort of go beyond the traditional recruitment routes. I'm, I'm just wondering, I mean, you mentioned the NQ pay war there. A cynic, a cynic would say, this is a long-term way to cut costs and actually get cheap talent in. Do this, are the city firms kind of aware of this? Uh, they would be aware of this kind of charge levelled at them? I think they are. I mean, this is very early stages for them. I mean, there is a lot of talk about how you structure these courses. They last for six years. In the first four years, you do your apprenticeship. You may get rotated around departments or or you may end up, as one firm is doing, staying in one department for the whole time. But in the last two years, you join with those that are coming through the traditional route. Um, one thing that I thought was quite interesting, actually, is that there was talk about whether once you reach four years, should you be a trainee? And Patrick McCann, I think it was at Linklater, who's head of learning there, was saying, well, actually, is that really such a good thing? Because you want people to know that you're coming via the apprenticeship route and you want them to know that you're coming through the trainee route. So there is some talk about how you elevate the uh, the apprentices. So they are seen upon a level, but obviously there's going to need a lot of buy-in from, from the partners for that as well. And to what extent, I mean, there's been some... Uh, some comment in the press actually about the the increasing popularity of apprenticeships because obviously you avoid that huge amount of of you know graduate debt. Is that going to be therefore a sort of an option for middle class students? I just wonder whether the firms are aware of actually the potential co opting by middle class mm. students to to get onto these very very highly prized and presumably very you know pretty well remunerated and great training at the firms on offer. Is that a sort of a danger that they're kind of recognizing? I think that is a really interesting question because 
quite obviously it's the people that are exposed to apprentices in the professions who are going to apply for them. I mean, there are people who are turning down Oxford University degrees to take up apprenticeships. So there is that competition there. And that means that firms need to think really cleverly about how they overcome those traditional biases and reach out beyond that middle class. And perhaps that means some thinking about what gradings they're taking people on at. I mean, maybe it's about lowering the grade score and and looking, assessing people once they get to that apprenticeship phase. But yeah, make no doubt about it. There's going to be a lot of competition for apprentices in the next few years as, as more and more city firms pile in. And I think that's a very interesting new development because, um, I mean, you know, the, the meeting that you went to, it's fantastic that what well, you said, 45 firms were there. Mm-hmm. There's clearly a kind of a collective endeavour about this. But but equally, they're in competition with each other for the same talent. So they're going to have to find it. They're going to have to re- recruit that talent. They're going to have to bring bring them on and so on. And and also in-house are looking very seriously at this. You know, our, our recent conference in-house council as business partner. Um, one of the most popular sessions was um, was uh, some GCs who general counsel who were on the stage with their apprentices mm. um, and super impressive young people, unbelievable, um, talking about their roots and the number the forest of hands that were going up and asking about this. So I think you're going to see a lot of that happening in house. Are you seeing differences in approaches by the firms already? Because differentiation even on this stage is now going to be important, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's where the competition will come in, won't it? It's about what's on offer by the firm. So, I mean, I was speaking to Osborne Clark earlier this week and and they're one of the pioneers in this space and they use it for six years and people go on a rotation exactly like they would with the LPC and they will go into business development departments or into marketing. Um, And other firms that I've spoken to are moving people into legal tech, which is a real sweet spot, as we know, for the future of, of skills and so and then then weirdly I don't I don't know which firm but I I understand from the conference last week that one firm has basically got them working in one department for six years and there's another firm which doesn't want the apprentices working in uh, banking litigation for instance so this one these are all things that need to be ironed out and I think what you'll see is a sort of like almost an index of the best um, best apprenticeships on offer and that will galvanize things around the law and for the profession as a whole I get that we are competing with each other but as a profession as a whole what it means is that the law, law is pulling people into the profession and they're not going into banking It's going to be interesting. It certainly will. Katie, thank you so much. Well, let's move away from the UK now and we cross to our international editor, Alex Taylor, who joins us from his map room. He's been poring over his maps. Alex, something's caught your eye in Eastern Europe. What's going on? That's right. I have been pouring over my map and I have landed on Warsaw. Uh, What's going on is market consolidation. Uh, Rimage Dots, probably best known for its high-end corporate work, has announced that it's merging with local tech player Maruta Wachter. Uh, I wrote about this in a Horizon last week, and we, in a bit of a tongue-in-cheek way, described it as being like if Slaughter's merged with Mishcon. Well, general market perception is that that wasn't too far off. That's interesting. I mean, tell us a little bit about Warsaw. I mean, who's there? What do they do? So it might not be at the top of every firm's list of places to open, but it is a really strong market with loads of great lawyers there. 
CMS, Baker McKenzie, Dentons are all present, and Osborne Clark actually opened up there earlier this year. Uh, there's some M&A work flying around, but real estate and increasingly tech work are the real drivers of that market. And I mean, for this merger in particular, what's what's causing it? What's driving such a strange Mishcon slaughter type merger? Well, that's kind of the funny thing. I mean, Rimajador, if you ever mention them to anyone in the market, will sort of preface it by saying, oh, well, you know, they used to be the uh, Warsaw arm of Weil Gottschall, which they did, um, because in 2018, Weil kind of had a look around Eastern Europe and decided that um, it was going to part ways with a few of the offices there. Um, so what that has resulted in then is a firm in Warsaw with all the processes that you would expect of a US firm with the sort of legal excellence, everything that goes along with that, and also the high level of fees. It's also got that insane work ethic that we always expect from US law firms too. Uh, Maruta Waxer, on the other hand, um, is seen as being a much more kind of tech focused and I guess having more of a European culture in that sense. Um, So cultural differences like this are always fascinating when you kind of want to see how they pan out. Most onlookers are optimistic about this, but there are some worries that if struggles start to appear, then there might be a bit of a crisis actually in the um, in terms of corporate fees that are charged by that firm. That's interesting. So, I mean, are you saying it sort of it, it always comes back to money, really? I mean, yeah, it doesn't everything really. Yeah, <laughs> Rimajadot's uh, top of the market in corporate advice, and um, its fees correlate to that really uh essentially i think is viewed as having set the benchmark for how other firms price themselves so there was uh there was one warsaw based partner another firm um they said to me that uh they do hope the merger succeed uh and that the rates go up because well they can do the same with theirs if the merger struggles and fees decline then that will have a knock-on effect for everyone else in warsaw which creates a few more pressures and you know, we may well see more firms replicating what Wild did four years ago. music comes courtesy of Adelshaw Goddard and they are singing, if you didn't recognise it already, O Come All Ye Faithful which is one of the classic Christmas bangers with the classic Christmas descant by David Wilcox. Yeah, so as it's Christmas, we thought we might have a little look at what some firms have been up to with their choirs. Choirs at law firms is something I certainly didn't really know about, but Kat, you're actually quite the choir aficionado In fact, listeners, Kat always pops off out of the office on a Wednesday evening to her choir practice, and in the past few weeks, you've even been joining some law firm choirs. I mean, why is it such a big thing for law firms? Oh, it's a a really massive thing, because actually it's the first time back um, singing for many of the law firm choirs for a few years. Uh, And of course, we've had strikes to contend with over the last week or so, which has prevented sometimes a full attendance. But on the whole, they've been really well, well attended. And yes, I do love joining and squatting in a law firm choir myself. Um, I've done the Travis Smith one at Bart's uh, for a few few years. That's always a top quality occasion uh, with excellent sausages afterwards. Um, And 
tonight I'm actually singing with the Stevenson Harwood Choir. Uh, so it's uh, it's just a lot of fun just to turn up and sing because it's the repertoire is pretty similar, um, you know, every year. So it's those of us who are who are sort of relatively experienced singers, then we just can turn up and kind of enjoy it. And actually, my chamber choir was singing at Temple Church last night um, because. The, one of the reasons that choirs is actually very important at Christmas is it's a massive fundraiser. So the, at Temple Church, there was a big fundraiser for Law Works and Advocate um, and their, the pro bono charities, and that was supported by Harbour Litigation Funding, Hewitt & Co., Opus 2 Lex, Concilio. So there's a lot of people really getting involved and uh, really, really enjoyable. So the, 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 the big thing about choirs is the bonding exercise. It's brilliant. It's great for culture. It's everyone has a wonderful time, no matter... No matter what position you are in the firm, you can be the senior partner and be really crap, and the lead soprano can be someone, you know, that works in operations. It doesn't. It really doesn't matter. Status is very different within a choir. I mean, so in other words, it sounds like it's quite a good allegory for law firms themselves. Uh, it, it is an allegory for law firms, but actually, I think law firms are an allegory for choirs because <laughs> because because like it's so it's really clear. Your prima donna rainmaker is your tenor soloist. Your conductor is the managing partner who's trying to get the harmonies to work and you know you get your workhorse associates who are by the way the bedrock of the firm well that's clearly the alto section so you know the the comparison very much stands uh what about the bases um the base the base the bases are all down the pub christian the bases are always down the pub (laughs) is that permission can i go is that i can yeah no well look it's actually it's funny because when i used to uh, work at a law firm back in new zealand um we used to have an annual kind of law firm choir much more on a jokey scale but we would rewrite carols uh as a way of making fun of partners um it was actually just a really good way of having a dig at a partner but you know in a light-hearted in a fun way but actually that shows that that all law firms are different and all law firm choirs are different you've got you know, and their approaches are different. Sidley and Austin have commissioned a Christmas carol. Um, Linklaters have got professionals in. Jeremy Harneman is the conductor, I think, and Will, Will Gardner, um, the accompanist and online editor. And they, they create these fabulous videos and they've got um, really, really interesting sort of digital outreach for their choir as well. Um, and then you've got RPC and they've drawn internally um, on their talent. So their head of disputes BD, um, Amanda Wadey, she's got a music degree and she runs the choir there. And actually, Actually, every different group of people is very different. I know a conductor that, that conducts barristers, and he says that they are half of them never turn up to rehearsals, but they're very, very performance oriented. Well, I, I suppose that's not surprising about the barristers. But to play us out here, um, as unfortunately we are out of time for this episode of the podcast, we do have the RPC Choir. Um, Now, we will be taking a bit of a break from the podcast over the festive period, uh, but you can look forward to our next episode in January. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at podcastatthelawyer.com and, of course, you can find out more about everything we've been discussing at thelawyer.com. But, yes, we leave you with that RPC choir expressing what I think we'd all like to say. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Until next year, goodbye. goodbye.